Well, thank you again so much. Uh, what an honor to uh, be here back at Princeton, uh, particularly to uh, receive this Distinguished Alumni Award. I want you to know for future purposes, they don't check your GPA for this award. Uh, so that's good, uh, that there's no limit or low point. Um, yeah, I uh, wanted to share a couple things. If you want to learn more about One Day's Wages, I'll share about it a bit in my talk today. But you can go online at onedayswages.org. We shot this video a few years ago. We've since raised a total of over $5 million. And 100% of all that we raise through grassroots movement goes to our partners on the ground. I was chuckling because I saw that picture of my family. Uh, we just dropped off our eldest at college a few months ago, and so she'll be completing her first year. My second daughter is with me on this trip uh, as well, and we have our youngest is uh, finishing eighth grade. Uh, I thought I would just share a bit about my personal story before we go into the lecture, knowing that we're all comprised of a variety of stories. And it's really important for us to know that no one is an island to themselves. And I think in some ways that's the reason why we're here at the reunion, because this is a reminder to us that there were friends, women and men, there were professors, people young and younger, who informed and influenced us in some way or the other. And so every time I talk, whether I verbalize it or not, it's really important for me to take a few moments, whether again it's on my own or with others that I'm speaking to, to remind myself and others that I am on the stage here, on this platform, if you will, not on an island to myself. I'm here because of my parents, my siblings. I'm here because of my great-grandparents who were the first folks in our family to come to faith. And I don't know who they were. Someday, I hope that I have an opportunity when I uh, am reunited with my Creator to say thanks to certain people. But some many, many, many years ago, some, I hope this is appropriate for me to say this, some crazy white Protestant missionary <laughs> got onto a boat where over a hundred years ago, you hear these stories of people who would sail two, three months. And when they set out, missiologists speak about missionaries having to create caskets in their physical dimensions because they weren't quite sure what the future would hold. And these folks, compelled by the whole gospel, would sail across and they landed on a peninsula called Korea. My great-grandfather, who lived outside of a city named Pyongyang, which is now the capital city of North Korea. But in his small little town, uh, he heard these missionaries. And he was so gripped by the gospel, he shared this news with my great-grandmother. And as Acts gives us a glimpse, they came back and that whole household came to faith. Both of my parents were born in what is now called North Korea. We have family that still live in North Korea. Whether or not they're alive or not, we're just not sure. But they were children of the Korean War. And what amazes me about um, the movement of the gospel is that these missionaries came, and not only did they come with scripture and teaching the gospel, but what I mean by the whole gospel is the gospel that is embodied and fleshed out. And so as a result, some of these early missionaries they were the ones who built the first orphanages out of necessity, who helped build the first schools, the first hospitals, 
one of my greatest privileges. Back then, I had no idea, but when I look back, having lunch in our dining hall with Dr. Samuel Moffat was one of the biggest privileges for me, particularly when he's telling these stories and you're going, what? <laughs> so I'm here because I'm not an island to myself. I'm here because although faith was part of our family, I guess, story or lineage, it didn't really become personal or real in my life until I was 18 years old, when I made a decision to acknowledge, receive, however verbiage we choose to use, when I came to the revelation that God had been pursuing me from the beginning of time. And ironically, it happened in my mother's small little deli. My mother had a deli. We had a grocery store for many, many years, which is a classic immigrant story. But she had a small little deli when I was 18 years old at a building called IBM in Sunnyvale, California. Now, I don't know if IBM still exists, but I think it does. <laughs> Times have changed so much. And so she had a small little deli, and at this deli, I had a chance to meet this gentleman by the name of Remando Gonzalez. And Remando Gonzalez happened to be the custodian that was responsible for that particular building in the IBM complex. He didn't speak English very well, had a child that was not doing well in terms of health-wise, but it happened to be that Raimondo and I became good friends during that summer of 1989. And I don't want to look back and over-spiritualize things, but I can't help but think that I labored through four years of Spanish con Senora Nicora in high school to be able to hear the gospel in a very fresh way from Remando Gonzalez. Uh, Remando would come to me every single day and he would be teaching scripture to me. Uh, one of his favorites was John 14, 6, where it says, Yo soy el camino, la verdad y la vida, le contestó Jesús. Nadie llega al Padre sino por mí. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And so nearly every single day, he would come to me, and in our friendship, he eventually would ask me, Eugenio, tú necesitas Jesús Cristo en tu corazón. Eugene, you need Jesus in your life. And there was something about Raimondo that was so captivating and compelling. Someday, I hope I can be reunite with him to be able to tell him that I actually did make a decision in the corner in the privacy of my bedroom at the summer, at the end of that summer, when I said, God, Jesus, I don't know exactly all the details of who you are, but that which I know of, I choose to follow you. So I'm here because those stories are just a little glimpse of the women and men that have invested and poured and encouraged and prayed and mentored me. And I know that if we had the time, we can probably spend days upon days just sharing stories of the fact that there were women and men that have poured into you. And thankfully, we've not allowed it to stop with us because that's really where the Christian faith becomes dynamic. It's when we choose to share that imperfect faith in a perfect God with others as well. And so 
One of the reasons why I'm so excited and honored to be here is because I know that Princeton, in all of its imperfection, was a place that informed me as well. So thank you for allowing me to spend some time sharing with you a bit about um, lessons learned over the years. One of the other things that I should share is my wife and I, we've been married now for 20 years. Um, we are going through our midlife reflection right now. <laughs> midlife reflection just sounds so much more pastoral and Christian, I think, than midlife crisis. Sorry. And dropping off our eldest at school was really an emotional, emotional thing. My wife happens to be a uh, family and marriage therapist. Pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> it means that she wins every argument in our home. It's almost as bad as being married to a pastor. Uh, and um, so having said that, I want to just share uh, one more thing, and uh, we'll go ahead and, and pray and read our scripture that I'd love to kind of base my lecture on today. I've had a chance to wear a few hats over my years as a pastor. I'm 46 years old right now, and I won't get a chance to talk about all of these things, but I thought it might be helpful for you just to kind of glean in case uh, it might be helpful during our Q&A portion. Uh, I... My wife and I are church planters. So we planted the church that we're in, and it's about 16 years old in the heart of Seattle, in a neighborhood called Ballard, if you will. We just moved about a year and a half ago, and we're two weeks away from completing our capital campaign. And there's a long, long story here, of which I won't go too much into, but we ended up purchasing a property sadly, uh, that belonged to a church that was probably one of the most influential churches in America that imploded. And it was so sad and so painful, no matter where your theological convictions rest in. And I don't want, I don't want to spend too much time in here because it's not my desire to, to put salt in, in painful wounds, but we ended up purchasing the flagship building of a church called Mars Hill Church. Uh, which was led by a gentleman by the name of Pastor Mark Driscoll. And so thankfully, we all believe in the story of redemption, and so we pray that redemption would take place even with folks that we might not agree with on all matters. But it's been an incredibly intense situation and space for us to move into this particular location. But my wife and I are church planters, and we plant, you know, uh, uh, a church that's multi-ethnic, multi-generational, that's really committed to being uh, an urban church committed to the whole gospel mentality. We also, for many years, for 13 years, I also ran a nonprofit coffee shop and music venue in Seattle. And I say for 13 years because we had to close that down about two years ago in order to make this move to this new location. But that venture was probably one of the most significant things that we have done as a church because we all live and do ministry or leadership in what sociologists call what a post-Christian, post-Christendom society or context. And I don't know about you, but Seattle is probably one of the poster childs of a post-Christian city. Very, very challenging for many, many reasons. And we realize that you cannot love your neighbors if you don't know your neighbors. It's just impossible. 
it becomes one of those like obsolete Christian jargon that we use. And so in a post-Christian society, no one wakes up on a Sunday morning and says, I think I'm going to go to church. It just doesn't happen anymore. I hear stories of folks that were pastors in the 40s and 50s where all they had to do was put up banners that said, free donuts and coffee. And folks would actually come. If not by droves, but they would actually come. Wouldn't that be nice? But we live in a very fast-changing context and culture, and so we realize that we needed to build space in order to befriend our neighbors without the hidden agenda of trying to convert people. And so for us, uh, and so, so Seattle, we thought creating this third space of a coffee shop, art venue, rental space, music venue, and so to have a venue that would host uh, as a place for election uh, booths, uh, a place where we had art galleries, a place where our city councils would gather for meetings, a place where we hosted lots of music shows, mostly local shows. Uh, it saddens me that some of these local artists that have become big will no longer return my phone calls. But we've had folks like Ingrid Michelson, folks like Macklemore play at our venue and so forth. But that space was really, really important and it serves to be, it continues to be our biggest challenge as a church right now. Is that particularly as we've moved into the largest physical church building space in the city of Seattle, is how do we build relationships with people that simply see church as one single monolithic thought? And in our world today, I probably don't have to dissect this too much, but for many people, if you're a church, you're just like the capital E evangelicals that basically are what is painted and portrayed in our media today. And the third thing that um, I've uh, put some effort and energy to is this organization called One Day's Wages. And it's our desire to live out the whole gospel, both locally in our city and then globally as well. One Day's Wages is a particular deep influence for me because of my parents' story. Because my parents lived in extreme poverty. And it was because of Christians and Christian organizations and non-Christians who felt that people mattered and that they should not be condemned simply because of where they lived. And that's why it's been a very important personal thing for us. So thank you for giving me some time to kind of introduce. I think I've got about 25 minutes to talk a little bit about uh, our lecture on the whole gospel. So pray with me. God, thanks again for the opportunity to be together with my colleagues. Wherever we gather from, we ask now, O Holy Spirit, that you would join us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And all God's people said, amen. amen. I want to read from Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. And um, if it's okay, I want to read a version that comes from uh, uh, a version called The Message. And I thought The Message's uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of this was particularly convicting for me. 
So Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, listen. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. Uh, I'm assuming that many of you, if not all of you, are familiar on some level with Amos. It's interesting because for me, granted I was a young believer, but I had never heard of Amos until I came to seminary. And even at seminary, Amos was not necessarily a high-profile prophet that many people spoke about. I mean, and in some ways, I think names really matter. This is the reason why if you look at Christian names, you have lots of the Gospels, lots of Pauls. You have the Isaiahs occasionally. I don't meet many Amoses. He's not well-known, if you will. This particular context is not going to make a lot of sense if you're not familiar with Amos' story. So I thought, even though I'm sure all of you might remember your notes in Old Testament about Amos, I thought I would refresh your memory just a little bit about Amos. Amos lived in a small town called Tekoa, which was about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. So again, not a very prominent city. If you said you were from Tekoa back then, scholars say many folks might not know where Tekoa was. It was overshadowed by Jerusalem. Yeah, 12 miles south, and just to park your mind around some historical context, let's just say 750 B.C. It was a little bit above that, but let's just say 750 for the ease of just memorization. And during this time, if you were to look at this particular map, if you will, there was the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And during this time, he was in the southern kingdom, 12 miles south of Jerusalem, and he had a job before he was called into prophetic work. Now, this is really important to know because no one is born into prophetic work. No one is born into pastoral work. No one is born into the whole gospel work. No one is born into justice work. Something happens in our lives. So he had two jobs, and it's really interesting, his two jobs. He was a shepherd and he was a farmer, specializing in something called sycamore figs. Now it's interesting because as it is today, although we do it in much more subtle ways, there's a hierarchy of importance of vocation. It's sad, but it still exists. So if you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, it automatically provokes awe and wonder and admiration. Back then, in their hierarchy of vocations or jobs, to be a shepherd or to be a farmer basically meant you were on the lower rung which is, again, why it's so phenomenal that shepherds were present when Jesus was born. When you were a farmer, the reason why you were looked down upon was because you were constantly outside working in the fields. 
And so as a farmer who specialized in sycamore figs, what he did was he was a small business owner, if you will. And during season, he would take his fruit to the local farmer's market in Tekoa. Because that's what you do. You have to look for demand for your supply. And so when he went there, what happened is he realized Tekoa is so small that he needed to begin to grow his demand. Business 101. You need to grow your demand in order to be able to increase your business. And so what Amos did is that he went to the farmer's market in Tekoa, and then he began to go to other nearby towns as well, trying to find a market for his sycamore figs. It's that particular journey that leads him from town to town to town, but it eventually begins to lead him up north to the northern kingdom, which during that particular context was known for his wealth and opportunities and opulence. So as he begins to travel up north, something happens. He begins to wake up. To use more modern language, he's woke. He sees injustice. He sees suffering. He sees oppression. He sees exploitation. And he sees it in a way that he's never seen before because the reason why it's so disturbing to him is because on occasions, and many occasions, it's religious folks using religious rhetoric to explain exploitation. And it begins to disturb him. See, it's amazing for us as Christians, as believers of God, whatever our backgrounds or denominations would be, oftentimes we ask God to move mountains. We forget that it's possible that you and I are that mountain. See, the Old Testament in many ways is a story of people who could not see that they were the very mountains that God wanted to move. Now, this might sound offensive, but it's my personal conviction and my own confession. I've learned that sometimes the most difficult people to lead to Christ are Christians. Because we're so set in our ways. We're so set in our rhetoric. We're so set in ways that might be contradictory, antithetical to the very heart of who God is. So he begins to travel, and he begins to see, he begins to wake up. And this is why it's so important for our modern theology that we don't necessarily need professional pastors or activists or justice workers. We need women and men in their unique spaces and places. And how do we as leaders and influencers in the church help them to see the world and the gospel in new, fresh ways? Because we need activism, not just in the streets, we need it in the boardrooms. We need activism, not just in the streets, we need it in our institutions. We need it in our, in our dining tables around Thanksgiving. We need it in many, many spaces. And so here is Amos, he begins to travel, and the thing is this, he begins to realize that this is so important that God begins to disturb and disrupt him. So you cannot read Amos without acknowledging that the whole gospel, the gospel is beautiful, 
Because yes, it saves. And for me as a Christian, I believe the gospel saves, reconciles us back unto God. But the gospel is so beautiful, it has the capacity to begin to restore and to redeem and to reconcile that which is broken in our world. It's a profound, beautiful gospel. The gospel not only comforts us, but for many of us, we forget or we don't want to acknowledge that the gospel also disrupts us. It disrupts us. It disrupts our way of doing things, being things, seeing things. How does it disrupt Amos? He can't sleep. He begins to have visions and dreams. And in his visions and dreams, God begins to stir and disrupt him. It's not necessarily the most pastoral prayer, but I've come to realize actually it is when I pray for our congregation, I say, may God comfort you and may God disrupt your life. Because we need both. To have one without the other, to have comfort without disruption, very seductively leads us into complacency. But I love the story of Amos. I love the fact that he was a shepherd and a farm boy, if you will, and yet God is able to use him. In fact, the stories of Scripture, as you all know, it only has stories, with the exception of Jesus, it only has stories of broken, fallen women and men that God chooses to use. Now, we all know this. This is our saving grace because that's the only reason why we're able to serve in the variety of contexts that we serve in. But when I think about the litany of women and men that I love speaking about in Scripture, it's amazing. Adam and Eve lied, concealed, accused, and God did not abandon them. Abraham and Sarah were old, which meant back then you were done with had serious marriage issues. Noah was a drunk. Jacob was insecure. Joseph was abused, sold into slavery by his own brothers. My goodness. Moses had a stuttering and confidence problem, also a murderer. Elijah was depressed. Rahab was a prostitute. David had a list too long for this lecture. <laughs> Jonah was rebellious, unwilling to listen to God's instructions, hated the Ninevites, John the Baptist, as we all know, was just weird. <laughs> Martha was a workaholic. The Samaritan woman had numerous failed relationships, which meant we all know that women were considered commodities in marriage. Thomas had doubts. Matthew was a tax collector who worked for the evil, villainous empire. Timothy was timid, and the list goes on and on. And so Amos is a story of a broken, imperfect, fallen person who was captivated, disrupted, comforted by the whole gospel. And part of this whole gospel thing is that we have to acknowledge and believe that God loves justice. That God loves justice. That justice is not a secondary, tertiary, peripheral agenda, but that justice is central to the heart and the character of God. Even though you and I can acknowledge the complexities and the nuances of the conversation of justice, for us to deny its importance or centrality to the whole gospel would be 
dangerous. This is the reason why I think, for me as a pastor, I continually want to encourage our church where we're probably many 20 and 30-somethings that care about issues to have a theology of justice rooted in scriptures. So that when things are fleeting or passing, it's that theology of justice rooted in God's word that begins to inform them. Because I want to make sure that it's not a fad, it's not a seasonal thing, it's not a trend, it's not a conference, but it's the very way that we worship God and how we see ourselves as disciples of God. Now, we don't have to do a word study. But yeah, if we went to the Old Testament, you'd be amazed, as you all know, how the theme of justice and fairness in its three different unique forms are just pervasive throughout the Old Testament. That we cannot look at it and say, no, that's not important, but it is pervasive throughout Isaiah 61, 8. One of my favorite verses says, I, the Lord, love justice. The example I sometimes use with my congregation to help them explain is that if there was a box here on this pulpit here, and I know you're not supposed to put God in a box. I learned that in seminary. And I know, but just for the sake of illustration, if there was a box on this pulpit and this box represented God, if we were to extract certain characters out of God, if we were to extract love out of God, all of us would be furious because how can we speak of God without love? You can't. If you were to extract grace out of God's character, the only reason why you and I are here is because of the grace of God. And I know sometimes it's not popular in our world today, but if we were to extract holy or holiness out of God's character, you can't. This is the reason why Isaiah, in his human finitude, trying to grasp the infinitude of God, the only thing Isaiah can do is just repeat himself, you are holy, holy, holy. So my question oftentimes to Christians, to the church, is what happened that we've extracted justice out of God's character and called it an agenda, called it a left-wing thing, called it a political thing. And I'm not saying that there's nuances and complexities, but something happened in the church where we took it out of the character of God. And we say, this is the gospel. The whole gospel involves God's love for justice. See, in some ways, I think we all know this. This is the challenge about speaking to pastors and seminarians and leaders. Like, you're like, man, I know this. I know this. I learned this. I teach this. It's a big challenge, and I get it. I think the challenge for us then is, is it possible? Is it possible that we're more in love with the idea of justice? Like, if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of you here, and don't, this is a rhetorical question, how many of you here love justice? For you not to raise your hands would be dangerous because we would all judge you. <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. If I said, how many of you here love mercy? All of our hands would go up. 
How many of you love justice? All of, of course, as followers of God, we understand it's important. But what if I said to you, we all love justice until there's a personal cost? And the thing is, there's always a cost to justice. For Amos, he was banned. The chief priest, Amaziah, get out of here. He received threats. There is a cost to justice. There is a cost to following God. There is a cost to obedience. There is a cost to pursuing the very convictions that God has placed upon your life. In many ways, I think it speaks to the confession that my wife and I have struggled through because after a while, when you're a pastor, it's really easy to be known by the person standing behind the pulpit. Uh, when you blog like I used to do, when it was in a few years ago, it's amazing how it's easy to hide behind words. When you occasionally travel and speak at places, it's easy to become a talking person, building up a particular persona. The big conviction for us took place probably about nine years ago. I had a chance to travel to a place called Burma, which is otherwise known as Myanmar for some. And I had a chance to travel to this place. And again, I've always cared about mercy and compassion and justice issues. But both locally and globally, a few things happened that really made it personal. So let me share with you the global one that helped start one day's wages. I was, long story short, but I was in a jungle, in a makeshift school or a makeshift classroom in a village called Number 91. Didn't have a name because some of these ethnic minorities were constantly moving from place to place. In fact, if you look back at some of the reports the United Nations gave out about 15, 20 years ago, you would actually have read that the genocide that was going on in Burma was as atrocious as that which was going on in Darfur, but at a different scale because of the number of people. But the intensity, the violence, the injustice, the hideous nature of it, they said, was at the same level. So we're at this particular village, and I walk into this classroom of 15 or so tables and chairs, and there was a greenish chalkboard that was scarred from overusage. So just use your imagination. I walk into this classroom with about two or three other pastors that were doing some traveling to do research about issues of poverty, disparity, and justice. And I walked in, and there was a poster comprised of a collage of photos that was taped onto the green scarred chalkboard. And I didn't want to be that Western guy that walked in and was like over demonstrative with looks or feelings. But I looked at that collage of photos and I was disgusted. It was one of the most, it is the most hideous thing, the most violent, painful thing I have laid my eyes on. And you're probably wondering what it was. poster about the size of this lectern 
There were photos of men, women, and children all over with missing body parts and blood oozing out of them. Now, I'm not an educator, but you would think that's inappropriate for a classroom. My host, sensing that I was disturbed, he begins to actually call me closer. Reverend Cho, Reverend Cho, closer, come closer. So as I come closer, he begins to get on his knees and he points to the bottom row of these greenish, grayish, metallic contraptions. And I'll never forget these words. He says, these are landmines. We must teach children avoid landmines. And, and that's when it made sense. And it was that day when I had a chance to meet one of the elders, one of the leaders of this particular uh, ethnic tribe community called the Karen people. And I asked him, what's challenging? Which, again, not the best question. I mean, in the midst of challenges, they were so hopeful and faithful, so tenacious. But he did say, he said, Reverend Cho, paying teachers' salaries hard. So being inquisitive, I said, how much are their salaries? He sticks out four fingers like this and says, $40 US. And in my ignorance, I said, per day. Because that's just my worldview, right? So I said, per day. And he laughed and said, no. In his mind, probably thinking, you silly Western man, you. So I said, I'm sorry, did you mean $40 per week? And he laughed again and just shook his head. At this point, I'm like shocked. So I said, I'm sorry, so as to make sure he wasn't misunderstanding. I was speaking slower. Did you mean $40 per month? His face turned stoic. I think he's upset now. And he shakes his head. And I say this not to make you feel guilty, but again, I think part of justice work is truth-telling. That's part of justice work is truth-telling, that we live in the year 2017. We live in a world where there's still so much disparity of wealth. $40 per year. Now, I share this not to sound more spiritual by any means. I hope that we, we've received our share of criticism. But we came home and began to pray about this. And sometimes we should just be very honest. Be careful what you pray for. Because as we prayed, God gave us a very distinct conviction to my wife and I to give up a year's salary as a household. And my salary as a pastor was $68,000 a year. So for three years, we saved, we simplified, we sold off things that we didn't need, including my midlife crisis car, <laughs> my 1989 blue Mazda Miata that I called Blue Thunder. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. And so, and that's how, that's how we started this organization called One Day's Wages. It was a, a response to that conviction. And so is it possible 
that we're more in love with the idea of justice. Uh, let me give you an example, just in case it may get lost on you. As an example, um, I love exercise, as you can tell by my physique. <laughs> A loud laughter from my fellow Seattleites. Uh, obviously, I don't love exercise. I love the idea of exercise. And they're two very different things. So you don't have to teach or preach to me about the benefits of exercise. I know them. I had a gym membership for 10 years. And during those 10 years, I went to the gym once. It's horrible. I have a treadmill, as some of you do, in the basement of your home. Mine is covered by jackets. I subscribe to health magazines, to two of them, that mysteriously download onto my gadget through something called the cloud. I don't know what that is, but it's amazing. I can tell you about the benefits of exercise, but it's a radically different thing than exercise. See, that's, I think, the tension in our church today where as religious people, eventually, seminary trained or not, eventually, we learn what to think and what to say. The question is, how are we living and embodying this in our lives. Now, I'm running out of time. I want to just share two more things. One of the ways justice becomes personal for us is not just that we grow in our information with data because that's what we, particularly at Princeton, we reveled in the encouragement to not let intellectualism be a tertiary thing, which is so important for us, that we can worship God with heart, soul, body, and mind, but I really believe the work of justice becomes personal when we choose to look at people in the eyes. Now, what do I mean by this? It means in a culture today where we have screaming heads, 24 hours, seven days a week, news all around us, we need to make the work of justice personal. And it cannot be personal unless we look at people in the eyes. When you want to ignore people, what do we do? We don't look at them. We don't look at them. In my church, who here wants to volunteer to clean up the church? It's amazing. They all look away. It's the reason why when we're at that street corner and our car is about to slow down and we see a homeless person on the left, that sight makes us uncomfortable for some reason. And it's amazing how sometimes mysteriously my phone comes out as if I need to check an urgent email. Because something about brokenness unsettles us. And I'm not saying that it's your responsibility or my responsibility to save everything and fix everything. But I do believe that one of that which God calls us to do is to acknowledge the humanity of each and every single person. So in that way, it becomes, grows to become personal. Think about Jesus. He does amazing things in his ministry, amazing feats, amazing LinkedIn profile. If he were to list all the things that Jesus has done, the thing that still captivates, it just fascinates me about Jesus is how in the midst of being busy, hurried, and pursued, Jesus stopped 
and looked at people in the eyes. The Samaritan woman at the well. The leper. Or that woman who's been suffering from internal hemorrhaging, which meant that she was considered dirty or unclean. And she's like working and worming through the crowd in her mind, thinking, if only I can touch Jesus, I will be healed. She touches Jesus. She's healed. It's beautiful. Hallelujah. And then Jesus asks what I consider to be a ridiculous, respectfully, a ridiculous question. Who touched me? As if Jesus didn't know. Can you imagine Jesus going, whoa, who touched me here? Jesus, of course Jesus knew. He's Jesus. But Jesus wanted to stop to give this woman, the disciples, the crowd, a glimpse of the kingdom of God, that in God's kingdom, the king stops. The king stops. The Lord of, the, the Lord of all lords, the master of the universe, stops to let this woman know, I see you. I see you. See, you might not have to agree with every single position, but there is something powerful when we tell the brokenhearted, the marginalized, the suffering, I see you. So compassion, justice begins when we look at people in the eye. And when you do that, and I'll end with this because of just, again, sake of time. When we do this, then we become that much more prayerful and thoughtful about the stories that we tell and how we do our ministry. Because one of the worst things about the work of the whole gospel or justice work is the injustice sometimes of how we do justice work. It's ironic. It's ironic. Why? Because when you forget the humanity of other people, you end up reducing people into projects. And God never intended people to be the church's project. Chimamande Adichie, who some of you might be familiar with, who gave one of the most, I think, compelling talks in the history of TED, a Nigerian novelist, I think speaks to the danger of the stories that we tell. This is what she says. She says, quote, the single story creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make the story become the only story. Just think about the homeless person. Think about Muslims. Think about the LGBT. Think about the myth of the dangerous black man if I can just be so blunt. It's when we've allowed certain stories to become the only story. Back to her quote, she says, stories matter, many stories matter. Stories have been used to dispossess and to malign, but stories can also be used to empower and to humanize. Stories can break the dignity of a people, but stories can also repair that broken dignity. This is the reason why when I received this letter from a colleague that I had met doing development work in South Africa, I was convicted. This KwaZulu-Natal 
South African local indigenous leader sent me this letter. Eugene, we know you run a development and humanitarian organization. Thank you for your work, but as you share the stories of difficulties and pain, don't forget to share the stories of beauty, hope, courage, and love. Please be responsible in your storytelling. Please tell your Western countries and their leaders that the whole of Africa is not dangerous, warmongers, child soldiers, starving, helpless, and desperate. Please tell your folks that while we appreciate love, prayers, and support, we are not in need of the Western white saviors or Western Asian saviors. I think that was meant for me. <laughs> he goes on to say, we are proud, we are beautiful, we have a history, we have beautiful art, beautiful music. We believe that we also are created in the image of God. There's a lot more that I'd love to share, but for the sake of just honoring time, uh, let me uh, end it with that. Thank you again so much.